Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the City Point Church Sermon Podcast, where our desire is to help you follow Jesus. We are so glad that you are here, and wherever you are listening from, we believe that God has something in store for you through today's message. Colossians chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 5 through 11 in just a moment. This series is called Jesus Above All, and it really speaks of what that song uh, talked about that we sang a moment ago, the supremacy of Christ, Jesus over everything. And last week, we began into chapter 3, and we, we saw what it looked like to have our orientation pointed towards Christ, to be, to be seeking the things that are above, and setting our mind on the things that are above, and occupying that, that secure, inseparable union with Christ and this week, Paul is going to get super practical because kingdom orientation is going to lead to kingdom living. Our life will be different. Our lives will be changed. The way that we live will be impacted and influenced by the orientation of setting and seeking the things, setting our mind on and seeking the things that are above. But I wanted to mention this. There are, there are two Christian teachings that must be held in tandem. And we must understand these because they go hand in hand. The first teaching is what Christ has accomplished for us. We call this the gospel. And we teach this and we preach this and we sing about this and we are thankful for what Christ has accomplished. But the other Christian teaching that must be held in tandem with that is now how I am supposed to live because of what Christ has accomplished. And churches that just emphasize or just preach what Christ has done, that's great and that's, that's encouraging, but oftentimes the gospel doesn't have handles. It's these high and lofty theological truths, but what does that actually mean for my Monday morning? How do I take that to work with me tomorrow? But then the other side of that is the churches that just want to preach how you're supposed to live and what you're supposed to do. And after a while, the gospel doesn't feel like good news anymore. It just kind of feels like a list of things that you need to accomplish. And so these two things must always be held in tandem. It's not an either or, it's a both and. What Christ has accomplished for me and now how I live in response to what he has accomplished for me. And I mention that because chapter 3 is a, is a shift, it's a change. Chapters 1 and 2 were deeply theological. This is what Christ has accomplished for us. But now chapter 3, this is now how I live. But it's in response and because of what Christ has accomplished for me. So let's take a look at it here. Chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 5 down through the end of this paragraph, verse 11. I want, you, I want you to get your eyes on the scripture. And by the way, keep your Bibles open. We're going to keep looking back and working through this text. We're not going to read it and then put it away for the next 30 minutes. We want to learn and grow from this text. Verse 5. Paul is writing to this church of believers in Colossae and he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly among you. We looked at that word earthly last week. It just means things that are of this world that don't represent the heart and mind of Christ or the kingdom of Christ. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Here's a list. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Here's list number two. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices 
and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But, by contrast, Christ is all and in all. Don't you love that last phrase? Christ is all and Christ is in all. So here's the big idea, the through line of this paragraph that sits over top of this text. It's this, new life in Jesus produces real change. New life in Christ, new life in Jesus produces real change. Amy and I, Amy hosted a moment ago, um, we have four kids. If you don't know our family, they're all boys. Our oldest is 12, and then we have a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 4-year-old. And there's something about the stage of life that our 4-year-old is in right now, Tyson. It is just the coolest stage. He says the cutest things. Life is just coming alive for him. His brain is like working and connecting dots. He just, he'll just, we have these strange, weird, cool, interesting conversations. Just stuff that's going on in his head. He's figuring out life. Well, this past week, something happened. By the way, the other thing about Tyson that I love is he's too young to get mad at me for using him as an illustration in church. I have to get permission from my other boys before I use them as an illustration, but I don't have to get, maybe I should. But anyway, he's getting to that age. Regardless, something happened this past week that was just one of those moments for, for us and for Tyson. So Amy was reheating some oatmeal for him uh, one afternoon, just kind of as a snack. It was the breakfast choice of the morning and it wasn't finished and so she was reheating it for him in the afternoon so she puts it in the microwave and warms it up for him and puts it on the table and he sits down with his spoon and his bowl of oatmeal and she walks away into the other room well a couple moments later she hears the ding of the microwave and then a couple of moments later she hears the ding of the microwave again and then a couple of minutes later she hears once again the microwave dings a third time, and she comes into the kitchen, and she finds a very discouraged and frustrated Tyson sitting on the floor, and she says, Tyson, what's wrong? And he looks up at her, he says, you made the oatmeal too hot. I'm trying to make it colder, but it just keeps getting hotter. <laughs> Do you ever feel that way in life? Like, this is not producing that. I thought this was going to produce something different. And it just didn't produce what I thought it was going to produce. And maybe even in your own Christian experience, you're like, man, I'm just not getting the results. I thought that putting this in the microwave would cool things down, but it's just heating things up. It's kind of having the opposite effect. And maybe you've heard the statement, clarity is kindness. Paul is going to be very clear today. Because there are some things that we should stop doing because this does not produce that. These things do not produce life in Christ. But he's also going to say, here are some things that should be happening, because clarity is kindness. There are some things you should stop doing, and there are some things you should start doing, because the reality is new life in Jesus produces real change. This is not just some idea. This is not just something that we just kind of tag onto our life. I'm a Christian. This is sort of a label I carry. I've got something around my neck with a cross on it, and so people call me a Christian. It's not just some outward display of categorization for us. There is actual real life change taking place in a follower of Jesus. And sometimes the kindest thing you can do is be really clear about what that shouldn't look like and what that should look like. 
So new life in Jesus produces real change. So the question becomes, what changes will new life in Jesus produce? There are four of them in this text. Four very clear changes that will take place in the life of a follower of Jesus because of, remember, because of what Christ has accomplished for us in chapters 1 and 2. So we're going to walk through them. Number one, when I have new life in Jesus, I sever sinful desires. I sever sinful desires. Look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore. That word, therefore, is the connection back to what was previously stated from last week. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly, what is not of the kingdom of Christ, what is earthly in you. And then he lists these five things. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Now let me just say about this list and about the other list, These are not in any way exhaustive. These are somewhat summary lists. No doubt these would have been some of the problems that were occurring even at the church in Colossae. And so Paul, because clarity is kindness, is going to list them very clearly for them. But understand this, sin should never be taken lightly. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That sounds a lot like Jesus' teaching when he says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If, if, your, if your hand offends you, cut it off. Like these are, these are severe and drastic and swift actions that are be taking, being taken towards those things that do not reflect the way of Christ in our life. And then Paul gets very specific. Let me walk through this list here. Sexual immorality. This is any and all sexual activity out of the safe covenantal boundaries of marriage. God has defined a marriage between a man and a woman, and God has given that, given sexual relationship, intimacy to that union between a man and a wife. So anything premarital, anything extramarital will be outside of the boundaries of what God has intended. Then he goes on, impurity. That's any kind of moral corruption. Oftentimes this word is used in, in the same list as sexual immorality. Then he says passions. And evil desires, now we're going from external to internal. Not just what's happening on the outside, but also what's happening internally. The lusts and the cravings and the desires that sometimes rage inside of us. And then he says covetousness. Covetousness is the insatiable desire for more. You just can't seem to have enough. i got to have a little bit more. got to have a little bit more. And then you get a little bit more and it's not enough. You get what you thought was going to satisfy and it doesn't truly satisfy And then he says this, which is idolatry. Idolatry. We often think of idolatry as just like bowing down to idols or bowing down to figurines or bowing down to metal statues. But listen, idolatry can also be when sin becomes a god in our life. When sin is sitting on the throne, doing the ruling, doing the reigning, calling the shots. And so this list kind of leads to what some have even described as the summary of the list, which is idolatry idolatry. And then verse 6, if you want to know what God thinks about sin, he says in verse 6, on account of these things that he just listed, the wrath of God is coming. Now sometimes we have a hard time reconciling God and the word wrath, the wrath of God. But understand the wrath of God is not like the wrath of man. The wrath of man is often in response to something that happened to me and I'm upset and I'm angry and it just starts to fume and now I, I want to pour that out and I want to express that in some way. But the wrath of God is completely different because God is completely different. 
N.T. Wright, the theologian, said this, the wrath of God is the necessary reaction of true holiness, justice, and goodness towards wickedness, exploitation, and evil of every kind. So I would actually offer to you this morning that the wrath of God is the good and the right response of a righteous and just God towards that which is wrong and evil. And so God will one day judge all that is wrong and all that is evil and all that is sinful. But understand this about sin. Sin is a battle for your affections. I have heard sin defined, and by the way, this is, this is a correct definition for sin, that sin is disobedience to God. That's correct. Sin is the transgression of the law, Scripture says. And that's correct. But that's not the only way that sin can be understood or defined, because oftentimes what happens, happens even before we transgress and overstep the boundary and step out of bounds by committing the act of sin, our affection has been turned away from our Savior towards that sin. And this happened in the, in the life of the first woman whose name was Eve back in the book of Genesis. Genesis 3, 6, it says, So when the woman, who was Eve, saw the tree that was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Do you see what happened before she took? Before she crossed the boundary, before she disobeyed the command of God, she saw and she desired these things. Her affections were being drawn away from God towards this sin. And so many times that's what sin does in our lives is it pulls our affections away from Christ. You cannot simultaneously love your sin and your Savior. It's one or the other. And it's this pulling away of our affections. That's why he's talking about idolatry. That's why it gets to that point of idolatry. So I wonder this morning, just, just how serious are we in the struggle against sin? Just how serious am I in this fight, in this battle? Just how serious are you in this battle against sin? Are we willing to understand the severity of what we need to do? Put to death, Paul says. That's extreme language when it comes to sinful desires and activity in our life. You may have heard the story of a man by the name of Aaron Ralston, as a matter of fact, they've made a movie about this. If you have the stomach for it, you can watch it. But Aaron Ralston was hiking a remote desert canyon in Utah several years ago when he was in, uh, he was in this kind of this pass, this cavernous area, and an 800-pound rock boulder fell and pinned his right arm against the ledge, and he was stuck. He had no phone, no cell service. He had just a small ration of water and food, and he was just hopeful that somebody might come by. Well, the days quickly passed as he sort of rationed that water to try to keep himself alive, and he realized nobody was going to come to save him. And so in a moment of absolute desperation where he had only one option, he took out a blunt pocket knife, and he began to amputate his own arm from the elbow down to free himself, to, to release himself from that 800-pound boulder that had pinned him. He told reporters later that he would not have survived unless he took drastic action. Understand that sin, like an 800-pound boulder, will pin you to the wall. Just how serious are you about experiencing freedom in Christ? Put to death. I mean, if you feel the weight of that, you should. <laughs> you should feel the weight of that. But lest we think that this is some sort of self-mortification process, it's not. 
Because Paul, the writer of this letter, will also tell us in Romans 8, if we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is not just us going out and trying to do these things in our own strength, but this is through the power of Christ within us. We start to experience this freedom and this release from that which was pinning us to the wall and keeping us from the joy of true abundant life in Christ. So what sinful activity in your life needs a funeral? Put to death. That's serious talk because it's a serious situation in our life that needs to be dealt with. When I have new life in Jesus, I sever sinful desires. Number two, when I have new life in Jesus, I retire relational misconduct. This is verses seven and eight. He says, in these, the word these is referring back to the list we just talked about and the one we're about to see. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Here's list number two. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So list number two, like list number one, represents who we used to be. This is what defined us before we put faith in Christ. He says, you once walked, you were living, but now you have put them away. That, that phrase there, to put away, has this idea of taking off an old piece of garment and laying it down, laying it aside. I no longer need this garment, so I'm going to put it down, I'm going to lay it aside. Maybe you do this some, sometime in your own life from time to time. Maybe seasonally you'll go through your closets, you'll go through your, your dressers, you'll find those clothes that you, you don't wear anymore, you don't like them anymore, they're out of style, it doesn't really represent who you are anymore, maybe you've gotten older, whatever it might be. So you go through your wardrobe and you retire some clothing that you no longer need. Maybe you take it to the Goodwill or give it to a charity, whatever you might do with it. You, you, you lay it aside. That's the image here that Paul has when he says, you are laying aside these things. The list of sexual immorality and impurity, but also this list of anger and wrath and malice and evil words. So again, Paul gets specific. Now he's going to talk about relational misconduct. He says, anger. These are the things that we are putting aside. Anger, that's that seething hatred. It just kind of gets to this boiling point of bitterness within you. Wrath, that's anger on the outside. You could call that rage. That's when anger is no longer just seething on the inside, but now all of a sudden it's explosive, and now it's pointed towards others. Again, this is the wrath of man, which is very different from the wrath of God. Malice, that's evil intent to cause hurt. Slander, that's defamatory talk towards other people. That word underneath there is the word from which we get our word blasphemy. And then obscene talk. These are words that contaminate both the speaker and the hearer. These things should not be coming, Paul says, from your mouth. If you were here when we studied the book of James, James has a lot to say about the tongue, the fire, the world of iniquity that is our tongue. These are all the old, out-of-style garments that Christians no longer have any need to wear. Clarity is kindness. Paul wants to lay out very specifically here some of the things that he was seeing at the church at Colossae, and he's saying, this is not who you are anymore. Maybe these things marked your life and categorized your life before you came to faith in Jesus, but this is no longer who you are, so lay these things aside. Put these things off. Real, true followers of Jesus are marked by real change. Now, undoubtedly, 
we walk through a list like this and you might be sitting here feeling some shame. You might look at a list like that and think, stink. (laughs) I came to church on the Sunday that he called out that sin. I came to church on the Sunday when he went through the lists and now all of a sudden you're starting to sit in shame. You're starting to feel because maybe you've been involved in some of these activities. Maybe this has been, this has been the categ- what has categorized your life. But understand that Satan so many times wants to get us with the one-two punch. First he wants to get us with the right hook of temptation. And he wants to hit us hard. And then when we give in to that temptation and we fall prey to that sin, then he comes at us with the left hook of shame. You have to understand this morning that shame is not a work of the Holy Spirit. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling shame because maybe this week you were involved in sexual activity that was not pleasing to God. Or maybe this week you were looking at pornography. Or maybe this week you were explosive towards your kids. Or this week you were using words that did not reflect the person of Christ within you. Maybe this week this list kind of hits you between the eyes a little bit and you're like, that's me. Understand that the shame that you start to feel because of your engagement in those things is not from God. So the question becomes, how do we as followers of Jesus deal with shame? How do we we process that feeling? How do we process that sense in our lives like, boy, this isn't who I am, but yet I still engaged in that activity and that's not pleasing to God, but now I feel really crummy about that. So as Christians, how do we deal with shame? Here's what we do. The first thing we must do every single time is we must return to the gospel. Return to the gospel to the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the work of Jesus on my behalf, that he went to that old rugged cross and paid for my sins. Yes, every single one of them, even the ones that you committed this past week. He died for every single one of those, and he covered every single one of those, and he forgave every single one of those. And so now what he did is he took your sin on himself so that he could give to you and gift to you his righteousness. So now when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, he sees his son. That is the gospel. You have had an identity change. So what is shame? Shame is Satan's attempt to to make a mockery of your new identity. Who do you think you are? Christians don't do that. Christians don't talk like that. And Satan starts accusing you. He's really good at that. He starts accusing you and he starts making a mockery of your new identity in Christ. And he's trying to pull you back into an old identity. And so you return to the gospel. And you tell Satan, that's not who I am anymore. I no longer am those things. I am now the righteousness of Christ. I have now been purchased by the blood of Christ and I've been set free from those things. So come back to the gospel. And when you deviate, come back to the gospel. And when you wander away, come back to the gospel. And when you mess up this week, come back to the gospel. Return to the gospel. How else do we deal with shame? The second thing we do is bring sin into the light. Now stay with me here. Because this is a bit counterintuitive. You're thinking, wait a minute, you, you want me to actually like tell somebody in my life group or tell an accountability partner or tell somebody who's more mature in their faith than me something that I did this week that, where I messed up? Yes. Because when you bring sin into the light, shame begins to dissolve. We walk in the light as he is in the light and we have fellowship one with another. And Satan would like nothing more than for you to keep your sin a secret But what will begin to release you from the shame and release you from the bondage of that false identity that Satan is trying to is trying to latch onto you is you actually going to somebody and just saying, Hey, I messed up this week. And can I just say as a church, 
May we never be the kind of people that heap shame upon somebody who's confessing to us. Because now we have become complicit with Satan. We are not, we are not acting as Satan. He's the accuser. We are the ones, when somebody comes to us, what does James say? Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So if somebody comes to you this week and says, hey, I messed up big time this week and I, I acted in a way and I lived in a way that was not a reflection of Jesus, what do we do? We remind them of the gospel and we pray for them because we might be the one needing to go to them the next week and saying, hey, I messed up this week. And they remind us of the gospel and they pray for us. Why? So that we may be healed, James says. So bring sin into the light. Don't, don't, let, it, don't let it fester in, in, in the dark shadows and crevices and corners of your life. Bring it into the light and that will start to disperse and, and, and dispel that shame. Return to the gospel. Bring sin into the light. And then number three, live free in Christ. This is how we deal with shame. Live free in Christ. This is not the power of positive thinking. This is the power of gospel living. Paul says in Galatians 5, for freedom, Christ has set you free. You'd think that would go without saying. Why did Jesus set you free? Not so that you, go, you would go back into the bondage of sin. He has set you free so that you would live free. So live free in the new relationship and identity that Christ has given to you. Return to the gospel. Bring sin into the light and then live free in Christ. When I have new life in Jesus, I sever sinful desires. I retire relational misconduct. And then number three, I experience ongoing renewal. The first two were negative. The second two are going to be more positive. These are some things. Again, clarity is kindness. There are some things you shouldn't be doing. Putting your oatmeal in the microwave is not going to cool it down. Stop doing that. But there are some things you should be doing. There's a proper way to live life as a follower of Jesus. And that's the, the, the third and fourth point here. So number three, I experience ongoing renewal. This is verses 9 and 10. Look at it in the text with me if you would. He says, do not lie to one another. It's a call for total honesty and transparency. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Again, we see the, the wardrobe change here. We're going to put some things off. So not only are we going to go to the goodwill with those clothes that no longer represent who we are, and we're going to retire those, but also we're going to get some new threads. We're going to get some new clothing. And let me tell you, the new clothing is a whole lot better than the old clothing. So all of a sudden, what you start seeing in the life of a believer and what you should start seeing in your own life is that anger is replaced with peacemaking, and wrath turns into good deeds, and malice is replaced with compassion. And now all of a sudden, instead of slander, you're using your words to edify and build people up, and instead of obscene talk, that's being replaced with life-giving encouragement. We've put some things off because we've put some things on. This new self happens both instantaneously and incrementally. I don't want to geek out too much on the original language and what's going on underneath the verbs here, but let me just say that when you read put off and put on, those are past tense verbs that are done and completed. The idea is a snapshot of an action that is completed. There's nothing you can add to it. There's nothing that needs to be added, added to it. So when he says you have put off and you have put on, that's done. That was completed. You say, well, when did that happen? That happened when Christ died on the cross, rose from the grave, and when you put faith in that. When you came to faith in Christ, you, you are no longer the old you. You are now a new creation in Christ. 
no matter what the accuser might try to shame you into believing, you no longer represent that. It's done. It's completed. It's past tense. But then he also says you are being renewed. Well, that's not past tense. That's actually present tense. That's ongoing. So in one sense, it's done. We've put off and put on. In another sense, we are being renewed continually. This ongoing transition in our life as we are becoming more and more who we already are in Christ. So what is true of this new self? Well, he says you are being renewed in knowledge. You're just getting to know who God is and what he's done. One of my favorite conversations to have is with a newer believer. This just happened recently to me. They came up to me and they said, man, God is just doing so many things in my life. There's stuff I used to do I'm not doing anymore. There's stuff I never thought I'd do that I'm starting to do because God's working in my life. The Bible's just coming alive. And boy, God's just doing so many things in my life. I love those conversations. And you want to know what my second favorite conversation is? when an older, mature follower of Jesus comes and says the exact same thing to me. Boy, God's working in my life. There's stuff I used to do that I'm not doing anymore. There's stuff I never thought I'd do that I'm starting to do. The Bible's coming alive. The Spirit of God is working in my life. Boy, I'm just changing every single day because we never graduate from that. We never stop being renewed. You don't have to just look back in your life when you were beginning your relationship with Jesus. That shouldn't be the only time that renewal was taking place. And if in your life right now you feel like there hasn't been renewal, then something's wrong. Because the Spirit of God is constantly kind and constantly working. And He's forming us into the image of Christ. Salvation is immediate. It's past tense. You have put faith in Christ. But it's also that spiritual growth that takes time. We are gradually becoming more and more of who Christ has made us to be already. We are being renewed in knowledge, but then he says you are being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is kind of a throwback to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, when it says that God made man and woman, God made humanity in his image. What does it mean to be in the image of God? It means that we are his imagers. We are the ones bringing his kingdom to the world. We are his representatives. Humanity was meant to be God's earthly representatives to take Eden to the world. But sin entered. And when sin entered, that, the image bearers were marred by that sin. And so what is this renewal process? We are, we are being formed back into our original design to be God's imagers to the world, to take his kingdom to the world around us. So that God's rule and reign would, would be realized across the nations. So what do we do? We trust the process. Trust the process of ongoing renewal in, in your life. Whatever God might be doing right now. The story is told about Michelangelo who carved the famous statue of David. And someone asked him how he did that. And it's recorded that his response to that question was this. Michelangelo said, I saw the angel in the marble and carved until I set him free. He looked at that block of marble and there was an image on the inside that he could see that others maybe could not have seen. And he just started chipping away everything that did not look like that image until the image, the statue of David, came forth from that marble. And you might look at your life and think, man, there's not a whole lot here. We might look at ourselves and think, I just feel like I'm just a block of marble. I don't even know if I'm marble. Maybe I'm just wood. (laughs) 
And you might be, man, God, you don't have a whole lot to work with here. But you know what God is doing? He's chipping away everything that is not a reflection of the image of himself that he sees in you. He sees more in you than you see in yourself. Because when he looks at you, he sees his son. And he's just chipping away everything from your life. He's chipping away everything from my life that is not a reflection of Christ in us. And sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's a message like this where you feel like maybe your toes got stepped on a little bit. But that's God in his kindness. That's God in his goodness. He's not, he's not mad at us. He's not angry at us. He loves us. He loves what is being formed into us. And so trust that process. Be patient. Don't quit. Don't get scared when you start to realize there's still a lot that needs to be chipped away. Don't be afraid when you realize God's still got a lot of work to do because he does on all of us. And so together, corporately and collectively, we are just trusting God to do that renewal process in us. We're never done, but we should be getting closer. Closer and closer until ultimately we are in the image of Christ when we see him someday. We have, when I have new life in Jesus, I sever sinful desires. I retire relational misconduct. I experience ongoing renewal. And then number four, and finally, I elevate Christ's preeminence. This is verse 11. I elevate Christ's preeminence. Here, Paul says, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But by contrast, instead, here, there is Christ. Christ is all and in all. The word here at the beginning of verse 11 is a, is a location word, here. So the question is like, well, where? where? Where's here? He's speaking of within the body of Christ, the people of God, the church of God. Here, in this place, among the people of God, we do not elevate these subcategories. This is his third list. Paul's on a roll this week in this paragraph, just list after list. This is his third list. And he's saying here in the body of believers, we don't have these subcategories, or we don't elevate rather, we don't elevate these subcategories. These subcategories oftentimes can lead to partiality and prejudice and politicking within the church. And Paul's saying, I'm going to put a hard stop to this. This does not belong in the church. He says, not Greek and Jew. The Greeks were the liberal modernists. The Jews were the proud nationalists. They were the chosen people of God. You can imagine the type of problems that could have been involved there at the church at Colossae. And now all of a sudden you've got Greeks and Jews that are coming together. By, they're coming to faith in Christ and now they're occupying the same room as a part of the church. It's causing some problems. Paul continues, he says, not circumcised or uncircumcised. Some Jews, that was a, a rite and a ritual that God gave to, the, to the, the Jewish people to be the mark of them as God's chosen people. And now some Jews were saying, all of you, whether you're a Jew or a G, uh, Gentile or a Greek, you need, you need to be circumcised in order to fit into the family. Paul's saying that's not, that's not what's required of you. The only thing you need to fit in this family is faith in Jesus. Then he says, not barbarian or Scythian. The barbarians, that word was a derogatory term that the Greeks would use towards people who didn't speak their language. And then the Scythians were like an extreme example of barbarians in the far northern parts of Asia. They, they were like one step away from being considered savages. And so it was just a very uh, derogatory term to call somebody a barbarian or a Scythian. And Paul's saying these subcategories don't exist here anymore. It's not slave or free. This distinction still ran through ancient society. It was an economic 
distinction that some people were, were, were sla- slaves. Some of them were even paying off debts through that. And Paul's saying you might, you might want to elevate the different categories and the different markers and the different subcategories of people, but here it's not about those things. I love what Derek said. We were discussing this passage this week, and he said, the gospel doesn't erase lines, it steps over them. These subcategories were still in this church. It's not about erasing. You don't all of a sudden stop being a Greek or stop being a Jew, but the gospel steps over those lines. The ground is level at the cross. And so here, in this location as a body of believers, instead, we fly one flag. There's just one category. It's not about all these different subcategories, but it's about this one category. Christ is all and in all. It's all about Jesus. We sang it a moment ago. Jesus over everything. Christ is all. That means that no one outranks him. Nothing is of greater importance than him. He cannot be disarmed, defeated, or dethroned. Jesus is not an add-on. Jesus is not an afterthought. But instead, he is the name above every other name. He is the king above every other king. He completely decimates all prejudices caused by subcategories. Jesus is all. But then Jesus is in all. Paul is saying he is the one that now categorizes you. He is in you, follower of Jesus. So now you are no longer categorized, you are no longer defined by what is different about you. You are now categorized and defined by what is the same about you. And as we look across this room, we're all different people. We come from different backgrounds. There's different ethnicities, there's different economic backgrounds, there's different situations in life, and you can come into a room and there are are subcategories that just don't immediately erase But the gospel is stepping over those lines. And the gospel is saying that all of us have now been brought together in Christ. And so now what defines us and what unifies us is not what is different, but what is the same. And that just changes everything. People should look into a church and they should be like, man, how does that even work? All those people, so different, so many different backgrounds. It only works one way. It works when Christ is all and in all. That's the only way it works. He must be, Christ must be the one flag that we raise. So here's what I want to do this morning. Corporately and collectively, I want to run this flag up the flagpole. I want us to declare our allegiance to Christ and our sufficiency on Christ, that he is preeminent over all. I want to elevate Christ to his rightful place. So in Colossians chapter 1, there is a poem. We studied it several weeks ago. Colossians chapter 1. I want to recite this corporately and collectively. I'm going to put it up on the screen so it'll be here for you. Now listen, I don't want you to recite this like somebody's making you do it, even though somebody's making you do it. I want you to recite this like you believe it, like Christ is your king, that he is the one who is preeminent. So let's just run this flag up the flagpole as a church this morning. So I want you to say this with me nice and loud. Ready? He is the image of the invisible God firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, 
that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That changes everything. When Christ is preeminent, not just in your life, but in our church, it just changes the way we live. It changes what we prioritize. It changes our schedules. It changes our weeks. It changes our relationships. It changes how we love and how we live. No longer are we calling the shots, but Christ is calling the shots. Let Christ be preeminent. New life in Jesus produces real change. And if you want to watch and see change take place in your life, just run Christ up the flagpole every single time. Let him be the flag that you, that you raise. Let him be the one whom you worship and whom you follow. So here's that big idea. New life in Jesus produces real change. Clarity is kindness. By the way, I had a follow-up conversation with Tyson. I let him know that there are other ways that you can cool down your oatmeal. There are proper ways of doing that. So what Paul is saying this morning, he wants to be very clear. He wants to say there's some things you should stop doing. As a follower of Jesus, you're going to sever sinful desires. You're going to retire relational misconduct. Those are things that should not mark who you are anymore. But also as a follower of Jesus, there are some things you should start doing. There are some things that you should start seeing in your life as you are experiencing ongoing renewal and and elevating Christ's preeminence. This is the real change that should be taking place in the life of a follower of Jesus. Well, we want the Spirit of God to make application in our lives this morning. So I have two questions as we finish up our time. Two questions as we learn to live. The first question is this, is Jesus your all? Is Jesus your all? And this really goes to the point that Paul makes in verse 11, Christ is all and in all. Is that true of your life? Not just is Jesus an add-on or is Jesus something you do on Sundays, but is he truly all? And if the answer is no, friend, come to faith in Christ today. If you are trusting anything else, if you are trusting anyone else, if you are thinking that any other pathway is somehow going to earn you or merit you or buy you or purchase you the forgiveness of your sin, you cannot do it. There's nothing that you and I can do in our own strength to somehow earn that from God. Our sin is too great. It took the sacrificial payment of Christ, giving his own life, shedding his own blood in our place as our substitute so that we could have the forgiveness of our sin. And so don't pursue anything else as your all. And if you were here this morning and you were thinking, man, I need that. I need Christ as my all. If you have been pursuing anything else, but today you're saying, I want to trust Christ alone. Listen, if you have If you have questions about what that might mean, or if you'd like to put faith in Christ today as your Lord and Savior, I would encourage you when the service is over, find one of our leaders at the Next Step table, the desk in the lobby there. We would love to answer questions that you might have or help you to understand what it means to put true saving faith in Christ. And we've got a resource that we'd like to put into your hands that will help you to to understand what that means and maybe bring some clarity to what it means to be truly a follower of Jesus. Is Jesus your all?
But if he is, my second question is for you. Where does change need to happen? Where does change need to happen? God is not seeking to put these lists in the Bible because he's mad at you or wanting to step on your toes or make you uncomfortable. But sometimes it's good to be uncomfortable because because our sin has become our God. And you cannot simultaneously love sin and love your Savior. And so if, if you've fallen into a pattern of sinful behavior, let the Spirit of God in his kindness and in his grace reveal that to you and bring you back to the truth of the gospel. This has not been meant to shame you in any way. This has just been meant to reveal some things so that God can do his deep restorative work in your life. Where does change need to happen? The Spirit has been kind to lay it out very clearly this morning. And the Spirit will also be kind to walk with you through that change. This is not something we do in our own strength, but it's by the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body. And if we do that, Paul says in Romans 8, we will live true, abundant life in Christ. Let the Spirit of God do the work that He desires to do this morning in your life. Can we pray together? Father, we thank you for the kindness of clarity from this text. God, I want to pray this morning for the one who maybe has not yet put faith in Jesus. I pray that today they would understand that all of the work has been done. All of the striving has been completed. You have done everything on our behalf so that just by simple faith, you ask nothing else of us other than faith. Because even if we could work, there is no amount of work that could ever pay for the mound of our debt, the sin that we have committed against you. And so you sent your son to pay for that debt, to pay the price for our sins so that we could simply trust and believe. And if there's somebody here that needs to do that, I pray that even now they would simply turn from their sin and turn to Christ as Savior. Do the work that none of us can do. God, I want to pray for for that one this morning, maybe who is feeling some shame because they've been engaged in activity that has not been becoming of a Christian, a follower of Jesus. It's not a reflection of Christ in them. It's not a reflection of their new identity in Jesus. I pray that that shame would quickly be dispelled as they return to the gospel and bring their sin into the light and live free in Christ. Shame is not a work of the Holy Spirit. And so, God, equip us and give us the tools as a community and body of believers to fight against that one-two punch of the devil. And I pray that they would quickly find the, the joy that is found in the truth of Christ. And I pray that they would find the release and the, 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 the setting free from that sin. God, do what you desire to do in our hearts and in our lives this morning. And we'll thank you for it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Thank you for joining us today. To find out more about City Point Church, visit us online at citypointaz.com. You can also find us on social media at citypointaz. Be sure to leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. Now from us here at City Point Church, go seeking to live on mission for the glory of God with this truth stamped over your life that you are loved.